this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be continuing on in our, our study through the book of Matthew. And uh, we're in chapter 19, and this is a, an interesting passage of Scripture, especially an interesting passage to do online, um, because uh, we're talking about marriage and divorce. So um, not necessarily something—it'd be a lot nicer if we were all together, but, uh, you know, we're not. So here we go. And um, what I want to do—this um, is the second time in the book of Matthew that we've run into this particular topic. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is dealing with the same thing, talking about um, there's no reason for a man to divorce a woman other than for sexual immorality. Um, and it's the same case here. He hasn't changed his tune. It's the exact same thing. So what I want to do is come at this slightly different than, uh, than, than just dealing with the idea of divorce, because there's a little more to this passage than just that topic. Um, divorce is pretty simple. Let's just, let's just lay it right out on the table. Marriage is supposed to be between one man, one male, and one female for life. It's a covenant relationship between a man and a woman and God, period. End of story. Um, it's not supposed to end. It's supposed to last, last quite literally till death do you part. Um, as Jesus says, um, what God puts together, let no man tear apart. The two become one. This, this is, there's not a lot of debate on, on what this is, but there's some interesting pieces in here, and I think there's a point that's being made that I want to I wanna drill down on a little bit more. First thing I want to do is um, I want to deal with the topic itself. Uh, let's see. I need to... Uh, yeah. I just need to click over to another screen. I apologize. Hey, look at that. Worked out really well. So I'm going to read through the section of Scripture that we're going to be dealing with is going to be in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, and this is how it starts. It says, Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, um, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him. That's, that's important uh, to remember that. They're testing him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? for any cause. That's the important piece right there, for any cause. We'll get to why in just a minute. Um, And he answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall uh, shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That tells you the permanency that God sees in marriage. Um, They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness, um, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces a wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We'll get to what this means here in just a, just a few minutes. It's not quite as plain as you might think it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. 
But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Now I want you to notice we're in the new version of the Bible that I'm using this year, the ESV. So there's some of your Bibles may say that differently. I'd be willing to bet that some of your Bibles probably say something along the well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Sunday Morning Sir. Sorry about that. This is this is going to make things difficult again. Uh, let's see. We're going to do that. Sorry, folks. We, there we go. Sorry, I haven't used my office setup in a little while, so I'm a little rusty on it. Um, so... Uh, that last section tends to confuse people. Like We're talking about marriage, and all of a sudden we're talking about eunuchs. What, what's, what's the deal there? Some of your translations probably say not all who can, not all can be single or not all uh, do not marry, something along those lines. The idea is that you remain, uh, that you remain sexually pure or sexually abstinent um, throughout your life. Not all can do that. Some people um, are, are that from birth. That's just the way they were born. Other people uh, are, uh, have that happen by, by the force of other people, and other people have that happen because they made the choice to be, to be single for their life. But not everyone can be all of those things, so essentially find where you are going to uh, fit the most. So it's a, it's, a, it's a strange wording right there, but you get the idea of what, uh, what Jesus is talking about. And I, I say that because we want to kind of get into the rest of this. Now, first things first when we're dealing with this topic is that, that phrase, for any reason. What, what, why is that such a, an, an important uh, uh, statement right there? And it's important because of where the question comes from. This is not necessarily a, hey, we're trying to, you know, we're trying to work out what the Bible really means and we want your opinion. It's not what they're doing. They're trying to trap Jesus into an argument that is already existing within the uh, within the religious leaders of the day. So Jesus doesn't fall for it. And this argument comes from a section of Scripture in Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Um, let's see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to click back over to, uh, uh, to that here in just a second. As soon as I look at that, it even worked. Okay. So in, Deut- in Deuteronomy, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, kind of a rough phrase there, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies... He who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away, the first one, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon uh, the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, so this is, this is, this is obviously a, a really strange portion of Scripture, but when you read it, it gives you the idea that divorce is, is not that big a deal as long as you do it quickly. Right, you get you get married. It, just just kick her out of the house. It's fine. You know what? You don't really like her. It's fine. Move on. That, that's not actually what's happening here. A few things to remember about this particular point in time, especially way back in Deuteronomy, is that very few marriages were because two people fell in love. Most marriages at this point in time were arranged by the families. 
So this was not the choice of the couple to come together. This was the choice of the family to bring two people together because it was advantageous for, for, for both sides of the family that were involved. This has never been a good idea. And by the way, it was never God's idea either. This was a man-made idea, and it was just done for, for, for societal purposes. You know, your family will benefit mine, my family will benefit yours, let's, let's, let's make our kids get married kind of a thing. Um, so, but on its, on its own, this situation naturally is going to create very horrible marriages. Now, some of the marriages worked out fine because it was, it was tradition. People just, you just kind of dealt with it. You learned to live with one another and it was fine. Um, but inevitably you're going to run into marriages that just aren't going to go well. Things just aren't going to end very well. You, you just you just can't stand the person. You can't stand the sight of them. Maybe you find them to be hideous. Maybe they're just maybe they're just just moody and just un, unbearable uh, on either side. Don't don't read. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But in that context, you're going to find people who are not necessarily going to want to be together. So this this creates an issue. Do you force these people to stay together for life because of a contract made by parents, um, or do you? provide a way out. And this is what Moses was getting at. That, you know, this there's, you know, fine, we'll 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 give you an out at some point in time so that not everyone's got to be miserable in the household. Um, but within that idea, two views came out within the the Jewish religious leadership. Um, and that was the first one was the view of Shammai and the second one was the view of Hillel. And this was an ongoing argument between religious leaders of the day. Um, the idea was uh, from the side of Shammai, he focused on the idea that because he found some indecency in her. So he, he found her to be sexually unclean in some way. That's what the term indecency means. Um, now, maybe he found out that she slept around when she was younger. Now, uh, and you got to know that this was always against the woman. It, it was always the man's decision to keep her. It was never her decision to keep him. That this, you remember, this was a long time ago. Things change, okay? Um, but it applies to both male and female today, okay? So maybe he found out that he was sleeping around when, he was, when she was younger, and he didn't want to be dealt with that, or he may have actually found out that she was infertile. At that particular point in time, a woman who was infertile, it was often believed that the, either there was some sin that she committed, and she was being judged for that by being made an infertile, or there was some sin that her family had committed, and that, that judgment was being passed down to her in some way. So either way, that person would be looked at as unclean in, in, in some way, or tainted in some way, or indecent, as the, the, the way um, Shemaiah looked at it. So this person was deemed sexually indecent or sexually impure in some way, and the husband didn't want to deal with it, so he would give her a certificate of divorce and let them go. But that was the only reason that Shammai granted divorce. That was his view. It had to be some sort of, some sort of intimate issue going on, okay? Um, and it was only after that indecency was discovered that the d- divorce would be, uh, would be allowed. Now, Hillel had a much more liberal view. He focused on she finds no favor in his eyes. The idea was if your wife burned your food too often, you could divorce her because she was obviously going to be a horrible, horrible person. Um, this, was, this allowed essentially divorce for any reason. That's where that term comes from. Is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? So what they were trying to do in this, in this moment, they were trying to trap Jesus into taking one of these sides. So they wanted to wrap him up, get him caught up in a human argument. So 
are you on the side of Shammai or on your side of, of Hillel? Now, if he had taken the bait, he would have immediately distanced himself from half of the Jewish leaders. That's basically how it broke out. This was, this was an ongoing argument. And they were just trying to get him to divide himself in some way from other people. But Jesus didn't take the bait. He didn't buy into it at all. He reminded them of something that is incredibly important that we need to remember, and that is that if you want to understand what God's views on something, you don't listen to the words of men. You go back to the scriptures, no matter how good the the views of those individuals might be. So when we take a look at, uh, let's see, um, yeah, when we take a look at uh, Genesis 2, 24 and 25, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Okay? So the idea here is that from the very beginning, before clothes were invented— God gave us marriage, and marriage was intended to be one man, one woman, in unity before God for life, period. Now, I get asked uh, quite often if I've read various books by such and such author, or if I read this book by such and such pastor, or, you know, whatever, or heard such and such message. Uh, I get asked that quite often, and it's always the same, uh, same idea. Do I understand their opinion on this? or what they have wrote about that, and do I agree with their opinion on various Bible-related topics? This isn't a bad question. I mean, we all read different books, so the you know, do you agree with this guy or that guy? Um, the problem is, when you're dealing with biblical topics, there are there is the Bible, and then there are people's opinion about the Bible. And there's only one that really matters, and it's not the people's opinions about the Bible. It's, it's the Bible itself. So no matter how much you like someone's opinion about a biblical topic, in the end, we are not judged by God according to their opinion. We're, according, we're judged according to the, to, the, to the true teaching of the Scripture. So when people try to update a biblical truth with some sort of societal understanding today, I don't have to, I don't have to go very far for you to figure out where, that, where those types of things go. What we do is we place the word of man above the word of God. And then God's word becomes subject to the word of man. This is a very dangerous thing to do uh, in any context, but especially in contexts of marriage. Today, marriage tends to be disposable, um, where in, even, even back in the earlier days when marriage was really more of a contract than it was a loving relationship, and you think about arranged marriages, it's more of a contract between families than it was actually a loving relationship. Um, it, hopefully, it became a loving relationship, but it was more of a contract. Um, but we are judged according to what God says about something. So does this mean, am I saying that we should stop reading anything but the Bible? No, I'm not saying that at all. I think you should read as much as you possibly can. But what you have to do is you have to understand that this is man's word about the Bible. And so when you read that, you have to filter it through the rest of Scripture. You use Scripture as the judge as to whether or not these people are telling the truth or even being even saying something uh, wise or even intelligent in any way not the other way around when no matter what big name pastor or whoever you happen to might be uh, you might be looking at at the time or listening to at the time their opinion about something is irrelevant if it does not line up with the text of scripture 
Um, you've heard me say this a thousand times. When Andy Stanley says we need to distance ourselves from the Old Testament, that immediately lets me know that we need to distance ourselves from Andy Stanley because he is putting his views about God's word above God's word. That is the very definition of a heretic. And so you don't, you don't align yourself with those. You do exactly what Scripture says. You distance yourself from someone who does something like that. There's no reason to listen to anything that person says ever again until their opinion about God's Word and its authority changes. So we come back to Scripture is the filter through which everything else is viewed, not the other way around. So today, one of the biggest failures we have, in my opinion, in the church, comes from people who are taught— Sometimes, honestly, just not, not, even, not even being aware of it, um, and oftentimes taught from the pulpits to view things like denominational views over Scripture, okay? Um, your denomination may be wonderful, but your denominational views, your denominational values do not trump Scripture, no matter how loving or accepting you might think they, they are. You take a look at um, uh, various denominations from, from around, the, from around the, the country right now, um, I think the, the Methodist Church has split because one side of the denomination wants to be wants to throw out everything God says about uh, about sexuality and morality and they want to embrace everything that society thinks is valuable meanwhile you got the other half of the denomination that wants to hold true to God's word so the denomination splits People looked at that as a tragedy within the church. I, I see that as a victory within the church. That's called addition by subtraction. You take away the people who don't want anything to do with the standards of God's word, with the truth of God's word, and now what, what, what you're left with are people who actually want to stay true to God's word. As hard as it is to, to see any church group split, at some point in time, sometimes it's just not, not avoidable because you're either going to follow God's word or you're not. Um, so that is, that is where, where we are. The religious leaders of the day are trying to trap Jesus in this argument by getting, getting him to align himself with the views of men. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He comes right back around and says, you know, haven't, haven't you not read? You know, hey, teachers of, of God's word, have you not read God's word? Do you not know what God's word says about this? It says... In the beginning, he made them male and female. In the beginning, he goes right back to the authority, which is God's word. Now, you think about other human arguments that might be good. They might actually be kind of fun to bat around every now and then that don't actually have any eternal value. Let me take a second and make a few people mad. Not that I've ever, you know, done that before. How about Calvinism versus Arminianism? Um, you know, when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you if you're a good Calvinist. Um, or a good, good Armenian. He's not going to ask you what your view on election or free will is, because it doesn't matter. How about tongues or no tongues? Um, at the end of the day, that's not how we're judged. How about cessationism versus continuationism? Well, the, your, the grace of God and the forgiveness of God is not determined on whether or not you're a cessationist or a continuationist. It's, it's, it's a human argument. Um, how about this one? Egalitarianism versus complementarianism. You know, once again, we're back to my forgiveness and my, my, my acceptance to God is not based on this view. It's a human argument. How about this one? The endless number of end times views. If I'm pre-millennial, post-millennial, mid-millennial, whatever, disco ball millennial, it, 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 it doesn't make any difference. Your view on those is irrelevant when it comes to your status before God as one who is forgiven or not.
a believer or a non-believer. Now, you can have different views on these things, but these are, these are, tr- these are arguments of trivia that don't, that don't have enough eternal value to cause us to divide, yet we divide over all of these issues. I've seen people leave, uh, I've had people leave my own church because I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, okay. Uh, I've had, I've known people who have left churches because uh, they speak in tongues. I've had, I've known people who have left churches because they don't speak in tongues. I've had people, I've known people who have left churches because um, the church is too egalitarian. Um, I've had people leave churches because, I've uh, known people who have left churches because they had the wrong end times views. They loved everything else about this about the church and the community of people that were there, but that was the issue that they, that was the hill that they had, that they decided to die on. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's it's not enough for me. Uh, and Jesus over and over again cuts through the mortal minded arguments and redirects us back to the source. And you got something as as I mean, you, you got to think about this. Before clothes were invented, God gave us marriage. That's how important marriage is to God. It's one of the first gifts that God gave to mankind was the unity of man and woman. This is a this pretty significant thing. Um, and at the, at the end of the day, Jesus cuts through the human argument and gets right back to the same thing. This is what God's intent for this was. So let's stick with God's intent. But what Jesus says is he gives us clear evidence, very clear evidence, that there's only one honest way out of the covenant of marriage. And that is for one person to violate one of the preeminent positions of the covenant. Okay, marriage is a covenant between a man, a woman, God, and the community. So you're making the covenant before God. It's being announced to the community that you are choosing to enter into this covenant willingly. And then you're making the agreement between each other as to how you're going to value those are the, the, the wedding vows. And you think about this. The only way out of that covenant is for one person to violate the sexual exclusivity of that covenant. This can be really hard for people to, to, to wrap their head around because sometimes marriages end for other reasons. But as far as God is concerned, that's the only way out. And it comes down to this. When you have two believers who have entered into that marriage covenant together, one of them has to not only step away from the marriage covenant, they have to step away from the moral teachings of God. They have to step away from the morality of a believer and essentially stumble not only in marriage but in faith. People who enter into adulterous relationships, I gotta, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to be really careful about that. There is a, there is a serious moral issue there that needs to be, that needs to be dealt with. So this is what Jesus says. One of you has to not only break the covenant between you and God, but also has to break the moral covenant between humanity and uh, uh, between you, uh, between man and woman. But the moral covenant between mankind and God. So this is a this is a serious diversion. So God intends not only for the marriage to be till death do us part. He also intends for the marriage to be intimately exclusive. Period. That being said, what do we do when divorce happens? So how do, you, how do you deal with that? Now, I want you to see something that tends to make people stop and think that the Bible is contradicting itself, okay? And this is actually where I'm going right now. When we talk about marriage, here's the question I want to ask you before we move on. Are we talking about marriage in a secular sense between just anybody, 
to unbelievers, to unbelievers, are they as accountable for the marriage covenant as to believers? Or is there a difference between the, between the vows made uh, between two unbelievers and the vows made between two believers? So let's, let's, let's get into that here for a second, because we're, we're, this, is, this is important. If you want to understand the idea of sexual immorality— um, or violating the sexual exclusivity of, a, of the uh, marriage covenant, you, ha- you have to understand this first. So marriage vows between two unbelievers are not, they are not binding before God. And I know this is, I know someone's going to get mad at me for this, but l- just, just stop, hear me out for a second, listen. Two people who don't have a relationship with God cannot make a covenant relationship with God. Who, who are you committing the covenant relationship with? You're not. It's not there. You don't have a relationship with God. Therefore, you cannot make enter into a covenant relation. You cannot enter into a covenant relationship with God. Secular marriage is nothing more than a government-sponsored contract between two people for the rights to property and security, life insurance, property, things like that, they get under the same name. So the government knows how to properly tax you and things like that. It's a social contract. It's not, it's not binding in faith. This is one of the reasons why I think that people who are non-believers who get married and become believers should get should at least go through the vow ceremony again and make that covenant between them and God. Now, do you have to do that? No, I don't. I don't think so, um, because your relationship, your relationship with Christ, I think, you know, um, uh, translates past that. But I think it's a good idea, um, and there's actually people in the church who have done it. I think it's a fantastic thing. But when I say that the value of the covenant between a husband and wife before they're Christians does not have the same value. People tend to lose their mind about that. They're like, you know what? I can't even listen to you. I don't know why. I don't know why anyone will. How, how can you say that? Well, I didn't say it. Take a listen to this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. Okay, now remember, I'm just reading this. Don't get mad at me. I'm just reading it out of the Bible. It says, so to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Talking about a believer and a non-believer, okay? Or people who come to faith, right? So now that you've come to faith, this is not a reason to just get divorced. So, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, these are two people who are both believers, okay? You, you, you got to understand this, that verse 10 and verse 11 are two people who are, who are believers. They, just because they're believers now does not mean they get to start their life over apart. This is not a license for divorce. Now listen to the rest of it. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Okay? Look at what he just said. I, not the Lord. Okay? That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. See, I'm going to explain why he's saying that for uh, for a second here, just a second. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. All right. Stop. Let's clear up a a, a quick question here. Am I saying in any way that marrying a believer suddenly makes you right before God? No, not even remotely close. 
what Paul is doing is he's, he's, he's recognizing something. Two people who were married who come to faith need to stay together. It's not a reason to separate, okay? You may have a new life, but you don't get to start over when it comes to, when it comes to, to family. He's also saying that people who marry, an, uh, marry a believer or an unbeliever, that is also not a reason to separate if your spouse is willing to be with you, okay? If your unbelieving spouse is willing to support your faith, you stay because that idea of them being made holy is the idea that you would recognize your primary covenant purpose is to bring them to faith. The main, one, of the, one of the main goals you should have as the believing spouse, okay, in a family where the other spouse is unbelieving or maybe the, chi- the kids haven't gotten, uh, come to faith yet, is to bring them to faith. So you are witnessing to them. You are doing whatever you can to try to bring them to faith. And, and why wouldn't you? As someone who loves that person, as someone who is committed to that person, as someone who wants to stay with that person, who has had children with that, that person, why would you not want to bring that person to faith? Your witness should be stellar. Your witness should be that of a committed believer. You should not be compromising your faith, even if you used to before you were, were, were a Christian. You don't go back to the person you were. You try to become the person you could be before God. So you, you do everything you can to bring that person to faith. In that, they are being made holy. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're leading them to faith. But what if it doesn't go that way? Here is a much more difficult passage. Now remember, I'm just reading this. Don't shoot the messenger. But if the unbelieving partner separates, look at this passage, let it be so. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead that life, lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So here's the question. Did God, uh, did, did, does God's word contradict itself in this passage? Jesus says there is no uh, there's no acceptable reason for a divorce other than sexual immorality, meaning adultery. There's no way out of the marriage except for that one person has to violate their covenant relationship with God. They have to become sexually impure. They have to violate the marriage covenant, become sexually Im- Im- impure, and that is how that is when God will allow the person who didn't commit the adultery to step out and still remain clean. Here. It looks like Paul is saying something different. This is where people say, "This is see, the Bible's contradicting yourself. So not, you can't trust the Bible. And no, that's actually not what the Bible is saying. What I want to emphasize here is that Paul is recognizing that he has, even in the context of marriage, no right to instruct a non-believer. Think about that just for a second. You got a believer and a non-believer in a marriage, and the non-believer is at the point where he's saying, and, and this is important. This is not just, you know, um, your, your husband or your wife doesn't want to come to church with you. Great, now I can get out of this marriage. No, you can't. That's not what this is saying. 
says, if the other, if the unbelieving partner leaves, meaning basically this, you get to a point in that marriage where you, your faith is continuing and that person will not accept you in your faith. They will not accept you as a believer. It is either your God or them. That's what Paul is saying. In that case, when they decide, when you leave your God, you can come back to me, and they leave, let it be so. Now, you notice they left, not you, not the believer. The unbelieving person left. That's the point. You don't give up, but they did. And here's the reality. They're not, they're not hating you. What they're hating is the Christ in you. You see the difference? It's not the same. They never had a covenant with you before God. How could they have made a covenant with you? They can't. They're not a believer. The idea is to get them to become a believer. So he says, when the, when the unbelieving partner just cannot be around your God anymore, and you have a choice to leave your God or leave them, what, what are you going to do? You know what? I, I think I'm going to condemn myself to hell for all eternity uh, because that's the best course of action. Seriously? That's not what God's asking you to do. Some people would try to force that marriage to stay together. But here it is, black and white, God's word. If that unbelieving person is going to go because they cannot stand the Christ in you, let them go. And then he says, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Means you're, it's, it's, you're not eternally bound to this. That is not easy. That is not easy to reconcile, and I get that. But look at the other part. God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. And if your existence there is bringing chaos, nothing but, but hate and disdain, and that person just needs to go, then for the sake of peace, let, let, let them go. Hang on to the Christ in you, because there's something better coming I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what the future looks like, but Paul is saying that this is that, that person. How do, you, how do you judge a non-believer for leaving a marriage? They never valued married, marriage in a biblical sense to begin with. So, so what do you do? Tough one. Very, very tough one. But Paul recognizes that he has no authority to instruct non-believers. But he does, in the previous, previous verses clearly instruct the believers. Because remember, Corinth was, um, let's just say, an immoral place. So the ability for them to jump from one relationship to another in that town was pretty over the top. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Stay married. Commit yourself to that relationship and and honor God in it. Um, I wish more people had that view today. And remember, this is not a license. This is not a licensed divorce. God disdains divorce, okay? Um, now, why did I go through that passage? That passage in Corinthians. Is that, that really directly connected to the passage, passage in Matthew? No. What I'm trying to show you, we've already clearly established that God's intent for marriage is one man, one woman, joined for life, period. End of story. And that there is only one acceptable way for that marriage between two believers to end, and that's one person to let go of the moral application of their faith. They're not only falling away from their marriage, they're falling away from their faith. That's what immoral, adulterous people do. Surprise! 
there's more to it than that. And Paul is showing us that there's more to it than that, that God values the covenant relationship between two believers, and we should value it far above what the marriage relationship between two unbelievers would be. It's more important to us. It has a deeper meaning to us. But it also does not make us immune from the reality that we live in a fallen world. Here's a scary statistic within the church. The divorce rates are higher in the church than outside of the church. Why is that? How is it that believers get divorced at a higher rate than non-believers? I think it kind of comes down to this, that we don't prepare people for marriage in a biblical sense. Marriage to us has become very, very secularized. It's this this disposable contract between two people, and you look at the celebrities that everyone idolizes around the world. They throw away marriages all the time. You know, you got people who make entire careers off of writing songs about their ability to, their inability to to choose a good man uh, or choose choose a good spouse. (laughs) I should probably watch myself in that one. But the value of marriage has, has kind of gone downhill in a lot of different ways. We need to come back to something more important, that the value of the marriage and the value of the marriage covenant between those two people, the community and God, needs to be elevated. You know, we need to take this a little bit more seriously. But at the same time, divorce does happen in the church, doesn't it? We see it quite a bit. I think it's something like 50.1% or something like that. Um, so what do we do as Christians when someone does get divorced? How do, how do we handle this? How do we relate to a divorced person within the church? Um, now, historically, I can tell you that it's not very good. Uh, we don't do it very well. Um, for some reason within the church, we tend to find that issue, and, and we elevate that issue above so many other ones. Um, there are denominations today that uh, if you're divorced, if you were uh, if you were a member in that in that uh, denomination, you're no longer a member of that, that denomination. You're no longer a member of that church. You can't be can't be divorced and still be a member of that church. And that that's amazing. I want you to think about that. You do your best to have a good marriage. Maybe you have an unbelieving spouse, whatever, uh, and that person just decides to leave you. This does happen. D- does the church somehow? just decide that you're no longer capable of, of having, a, having a marriage? Uh, you're no longer capable of being a good person? That you shouldn't be a member of that church anymore? Why, why is it that we do that? Well, I think someone actually just came in. Hopefully they don't come knocking on my door. But uh, in many cases, people who are involved in ministry are barred from any kind of ministry. Uh, they're no longer allowed to be part of, uh, to be uh, actively involved in ministry. Um, people who are, uh, you know, pastors step down, I get that. I understand that. Scripture says that if you can't manage your own household, you have no manage, uh, business managing the household of God. So I get that. But on a lot of t- lot of chance, lot of times, they're not even they're not ever allowed to regain themselves. Like somehow they're permanently broken. And and what this does is it gives us this idea that people who are involved in ministry are supposed to have somehow be perfect, to be immune from challenges, to not have you know failures in their life. You know, last thing you want is a pastor who's got had failure after failure. Uh, I would rather have a pastor who's had failure after failure. Um, I've had failure after failure. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. What I have done is I've learned how to work through those failures. I've learned how to get past those failures. Um, That's the type of person that I think should be involved in ministry. 
someone who can relate to someone who has to hit their knees and ask for God's forgiveness. Why would we want someone involved in ministry who doesn't understand what failure is like? It's really hard to, to, to guide someone through that, to, to guide someone through something that you've never actually experienced. Um, doesn't mean you can't. It just makes it really, really difficult. People who are divorced who uh, tend to get into start new relationships, I've seen this over and over again. Um, people in a church feel the need to let their um, uh, new significant other or new uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, however you want to say it, know, you know, did they, did they tell you that they were divorced? Did you know that they were divorced? Do you know why they were divorced? Do you know, do you know all the things that I don't know? Can I get some more information from you? Um, it's like we have to warn people that that person is some sort of relationally broken, uh, and it's not our place to do that in any way, shape, or form. I don't know why we do this, but it is a reality within the church, and honestly, I think it's a failure that we need to address and and, and at least be, be aware of, because I don't think it's good in any way. Um, think about this. Is it harder, is it more difficult for God to forgive a thief, a liar, a gossip, or a slanderer than it is for God to forgive a divorced person or, or someone who fell into adultery. Uh, do you know that there's only one unforgivable sin and uh, divorce and adultery are, ne- it's, neither one of those are the unforgivable sin? Both of those can be forgiven by someone who comes to God in honest, true repentance. So if someone is divorced for whatever reason and they go to God in honest, true repentance, who are we to deny them a second chance. Who are we to deny them something new? Are we so elevated above everybody else that um, anyone who falls beneath us should be treated just that way, someone beneath us? I want you to see something, and I'm going to close with this. John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. Let's see. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, in the very act of adultery, okay? Uh, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they had heard it, they went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Listen carefully. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and here's the important part, And from now on, sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. So get up and go, and from now on, sin no more. You think about this. This woman is literally caught in the act. It's very possible she was wearing little to nothing when they tossed her on the ground in front of Jesus. The law says, kill her. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, um, you can kill her if all the rest of you are perfect. If you've never made any mistake in your life. 
everyone realizes the implications there. You throw that stone, you're claiming to everyone around them, around, around the area, that you are perfect. Everyone leaves. Where are those who condemn you? They are gone. I don't condemn you either, Jesus says. Go there, uh, go f- uh, from here and sin no more. See, that's the issue. There is no doubt that the covenant relationship in marriage between a man and a woman who are believers is to be binding till death do us part. No doubt. There's also no doubt that God values the covenant relationship between believers far above the government-sponsored marriage contract between non-believers. One is binding, one isn't. Someone's going to get mad at me for saying that, but just go back to Corinthians and read it. Remember, I didn't make this up. I'm just reading it out of Scripture. Argue with God. But at the same time, divorce happens. Adultery happens. So what do you do at that point? Jesus gives us the example right here. Completely. What do you do? If that person comes to God in honest, true repentance, and they change, who are we to deny that person the same forgiveness, the same grace, and the same fresh start that we would want if it was us? We shouldn't. So as believers... First and foremost, you value your marriage before God. You value it above everything else. Secondly, understand that the, uh, uh, the happy ending that we want so much is not the truth for everybody. It just doesn't happen for everyone. Sorry, it just doesn't. And when those failures happen, make sure you treat them the same way Jesus treated this lady. Caught in the very act of adultery, death was... was totally legitimate. Jesus could have tossed that for, tossed that stone. He didn't. He chose to forgive. We should do exactly the same thing. So we value the marriages that we have and we value, value them the way that God intended them to be valued. One man, one woman for life. But we also value the people whose marriages fell apart for one reason or another. The same way we would value anybody else caught in any other sin in any other way. We bring them to a place of repentance and restoration, and we allow God to continue using them the way he sees fit. We should have the same grace for, for, uh, for people caught, uh, who are caught in adultery, uh, caught in adultery or, or, or the victims of a divorce as we would for anybody else. <sighs> yeah, there we go. And uh, I think I'm going to pray for us and jump out after that um, and then see how many... Uh, See how many angry people I get throughout the week. <laughs> Just remember, folks, I'm not, giving, I'm not giving anyone a way out of a marriage. You got into it, honor it. But at the same time, we do need to understand the world that we live in, and we need to care for people who have gone through it. I don't know anyone who's ever been divorced who was like, oh, finally, I just can't, can't, just couldn't wait to get out of this. Everyone I've ever known who was divorced was broken in that relationship in some way. And we should have... We should have grace for that. We should have pity for that. We should have mercy for that. And uh, too often we don't. So um, let's let's change our views on these things and try to go back to the uh, back away from the views that men hold on these things. And let's go back to Have you not read? Do you not know what the Scripture says about these things? Let's value the marriage marriage is the way that they're supposed to be valued, but also value the people who were broken in the process of divorce the same way. <laughs> 